Are You Just Watching is supported by our dearly loved listeners. Special thanks to Craig Hardy, Richard French, and Stephen Brown II for their monthly support. To help support Are You Just Watching, please go to patreon.com slash are you just watching. Show notes for this episode can be found at areyoujustwatching.com slash 75. Are you just watching episode 75 arrival part two the second time that it arrives <laughs> there and back again <laughs> <laughs> wrong movie i'm e franklin i'm tim martin we're on our second discussion of the movie Arrival. And we had, in our previous discussion, we talked about some of the differences between the movie and the story. We talked about uh, language, what language is. And we spent a little bit of time uh, talking about the politics that was presented in the movie, not necessarily in the story, but in the movie. And then we kind of glazed over that pretty quick because we don't really like to talk about politics on this show. Yeah. <laughs> But so in this this discussion, we're going to delve directly into the heptapods concept of time, which is the circular premise, the very foundation, the basis of both the story and the movie. As I mentioned at the beginning of our last episode, the movie itself is a heptapod iconogram or whatever we call it. They called it in in a logogram. Log- That's what it is. Yeah, logogram. Log- log- logogram? Logogram? Uh, logogram, logogram, tomato, Something tomato. like that. <laughs> There's that communication language thing again. Um, uh, so it's uh, the movie itself is a logogram in that you start at the ending and you end at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It is a very circular. And the reason it's circular in, you know, the big thing I think we actually really haven't discussed is the fact that the main character, Louise uh, Banks, uh, at the beginning is showing this flashback into the life of her child who died uh, at a, I, I guess, in her teens uh, from some kind of disease like cancer yeah. or something they don't Which, really say what it was it's and on a the, side note that's different than, than the, the yes story and, too, than the but. story and the story that she dies rock climbing which i i did at first i didn't like but as i progressed in the story i realized that it it kind of made sense because it kind of dealt with that whole if i had known if i hadn't known that she was going to die that way mm-hmm. then maybe i would have not been so protective which would have not made her so free with her risk yeah and live life to the minimum or the maximum type thing right and she almost felt like she was responsible for her daughter dying rock climbing because she knew that she was going to die rock climbing yeah so i i could see where that actually worked better in the book um and so i'm not really tied to how they portray the death but the point of the matter is is that uh you're led to believe at the beginning of the movie that this is something that has happened in the past. Mm -hmm. But as you progress through the movie, you find out that it's something that hasn't happened yet, that she has not married and she has not had children yet in the main events of the movie. So you're seeing... She's having memories of stuff that is yet to come. Hasn't happened. Yes, exactly. And which makes her question the whole whole concept of what memory is. And yeah, um, but it's interesting in that we we deal with this whole concept of knowing what's going to happen as if it's already happened. So it's not this vision of possible futures. It's this vision of this is what has happened. And one of my favorite ways of talking about time in relation to God is that time is like a sphere in the hand of God, that he is completely outside time, which means that he's not affected by time. He's not in the flow of, of timely events. Um, it's all happened. He's holding it in his hand and he's outside of it. And I really feel like that's 
what they were trying to portray in the movie. But instead of being outside time, you have the perspective of being outside time, but still be inside time, which is a little mind blowing to think about. Um, Sorry, my my brain is um, out of my ear there. Let me clean it up. (laughs) One of the first keys I think they give you to this is this, this um, quote. They can't seem to follow our algebra, but complex behaviors. That clicks. Oh, that doesn't make any sense. Now, this was actually a little bit more prominent in the story than it was in the movie. They almost kind of like stick it in as a background noise. It's kind of like almost a transition from one scene to another. It's not a, a very prominent point that they're trying to make in the movie. But I think it's, I pointed out, even before reading the story, I had picked it out as being an important quote. Because algebra, for those of us who are somewhat mathematical, and I'm not by any means, but I enjoyed algebra. It was one of the few kinds of math that I actually liked. (laughs) Algebra is solving for the unknown. So you have an X and you have to figure out what that X is by solving for it. So it's an unknown that you're solving for. Algebra would make total nonsense to somebody who can see all of time at once. Because there is no unknown. Mm. Oh, that's a good point. I never thought of that. Yeah. So that's why algebra. No, no unknowns when all is known. Right. So if if you if you can see the end of the formula before you write the formula, then there's no point to algebra. <laughs> and that's why they can't seem to follow our algebra because they already know the outcome. So what's the point? Algebra has no point to them whatsoever. It's, I completely missed that in, in movie – I don't remember if it was in the book, but I completely missed it either way. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were talking – Yeah. They were talking about it in the story too. They couldn't even get them to repeat back algebra and in the story. And they would repeat back other things, but they wouldn't repeat back algebra. And But I had already caught that in the movie that it was – algebra is solving for the unknown. And if you have – if there isn't an unknown, there's nothing to solve for. So yeah, that made sense. And I just thought it was very interesting that they just threw it in there as a little tidbit and it's so easy to overlook. Um, (laughs) But it is actually a a tie into how complex their concept of time was that math would completely change what it's used for in a, in a civilization that has no unknowns like that, you know, that, that you're working within a realm of understanding that encompasses uh, time in all of its forms, past, present, and future, um, math would very much change in its use as a tool. Yeah. So I, that that was one thing that stood out to me. You know, um, the whole idea of uh, knowing how the story is going to end mm-hmm. really is what it comes down to. Um, got me thinking about, uh, you know, the whole argument argument. Uh, about uh, free will versus predestination. Mm-hmm. And I recently, in, in another book I'm reading, uh, The Shadow of What Was Lost by James Ilsington, uh, I read a, uh, there's a description that I thought was very apropos. They're, they're actually talking about uh, the ability to prophesy from the one god, El, which is suspiciously like El Shaddai. <laughs> but the, Description it gives is is pretty good. Uh, Mal, Mal Shast inclined his head. I, I I don't think so though. Perhaps it's that's not the best way to think about it. The future may be immutable, but it's not because our choices do not change anything. It's because they have already changed things. The decisions you make tomorrow are the same as those you made yesterday. Still your choices, and still with consequences, but unalterable. The only difference is your knowledge of the decisions you made yesterday. Hmm. And I think I think that sort of ties into uh, how it's saying that the the aliens see time uh, as it already having happened. You, the free will is there, mm-hmm. but you have already exercised it. You just are not to that point in your timeline <laughs> where where you have knowledge of what that exercise of free will entailed. Yeah, in the story. Uh- the stories, stories of your life. Uh, I think it, it's uh, in page 24 in what we'll link to in the show notes. It, there's a whole discussion about free will 
and they have this um, concept where they, they put somebody in front of the book of ages to look up what they're going to do after they read the book of ages and, but then decide not to do it. But if it's in the book of ages, ages it's, here, I'll just read it because it's easier to raise the book of ages cannot be wrong. The scenario is based on the premise that a person is given knowledge of the actual future, not of some possible future. If this were Greek myth, circumstances would conspire to make her enact her fate despite her best efforts. But prophecies in myth are notoriously vague. The book of ages is quite specific and there's no way she can be forced to bet on a racehorse in the manner specified. That was the the uh, previous example they gave. The result is a contradiction. The book of ages must be right by definition, yet no matter what the book says she'll do, she can choose to do otherwise. How can these two facts be reconciled? And then he says, they can't be, was the common answer. A volume like the book of ages is a logical impossibility for the precise reason that its existence would result in the above contradiction. Or to be generous, some might say that the book of ages could exist as long as it wasn't accessible to readers. That volume is housed in a special collection and no one has viewing privileges. The existence of free will meant that we couldn't know the future and we knew free will existed because we had direct experience of it. Volition was an intrinsic part of consciousness. Or was it? What if the experience of knowing the future changed a person? What if it evoked a sense of urgency, a sense of obligation to act precisely as she knew she would? So that this was something they dealt with uh, quite extensively, actually, in the story that I think completely gets lost into basically a question in the in the yeah in the movie at the end. They're, they asked the it, question. It would have been hard to put in put in the movie to the extent that it it's in the right. story and and the question they ask at the end while she asks ian is if you could see your whole life from start to finish would you change things maybe i'd say what i feel more often i i don't know that sounds like a guy's answer, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'd be less guy-like. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Maybe I'd just say what I feel more often. Um, it's interesting that she asked him that because right after that, in that same conversation, he talks about you know them getting married and, and, then, and then she sees the future's point where he says, uh, asks her about making a baby. And that mm -hmm. whole concept of they meet during this, that's the beginning of her daughter's story because that's how she meets Ian. If the aliens had never arrived, she would have never met her daughter's father. And and then she knew the entire story of what would happen to her daughter, but she didn't tell Ian until later and after the baby is born and after they've already committed to that relationship. And then she tells him how the... I guess at some point she tells him because that's the reason he left her. And she, and she yeah. has this moment during the movie where she's having this flash forward. Oh, this is, I found out why my husband left me. And, and he's like, I didn't know you were married. <laughs> so they play with this time over and over again through the movie in that she's, she's seeing the future. And you think at the time, because they never show Ian. You don't realize that he's the one that she's married to and the father of her daughter. Um, right. You don't realize until that, that moment at the end that she's making decisions for him because she can see what's going to happen and he can't. And and it eventually is going to lead to their divorce and she makes those decisions anyway. So is there free will there and that she has chosen to go ahead with this life or that life was there for her to see because she went ahead and, and did it or <laughs> it's it it is the way it is because of the decisions and choices she made right right, right. and and this is this is a question that has always divided christendom and you have your arminians on one side who are all free mm. will and you have your Calvinists on the other side who are all predestination. And and then you have some people that kind of slink around in the middle somewhere in between. <laughs> who try not to get in slink, slink yeah, around. <laughs> who try not to get involved in the debate because they really don't know how to debate either side. <laughs> and I have to say I'm somewhere kind of in the middle, slinking around, trying to avoid both sides. But 
I do believe in free will. I do believe that it's inscriptural to believe in free will, that God has given us the free will to sin and reject him and or accept him. But I also know that it is predestined that we our choices are predestined because God foreknows them and that his knowing does not take away from our free will. Right. And I think that that is a concept that they dealt with actually fairly well in the movie for a non-Christian movie <laughs> that you can know. Yeah, they, they had to because they were establishing the idea that the haptopods viewed our timeline from outside of it. Mm-hmm. So they were essentially they, – they had to explain it in a way that – really does really is applicable to how God views it because God is outside of right. time. Right. If you constrain God to time, then he's no longer God because he's no longer all knowing to be all knowing. You have to be outside of time. And that is the way he is presented in scripture. So we believe that that is what he is. He is, he is the alpha and the omega. He is before time. He is after time. Uh, he is the beginning. He is the end and he is preexistent. So, he created time. Time is a concept inside his mind. And we live within that concept. You know, he thought us into being, he spoke us into being. And when he spoke us into being, he spoke time into being. Mm -hmm. And so time is, is a created construct that God made and we are within it. So we can't see, we can't fathom what it would be like to be outside of it because we are not God. Thankfully. (laughs) I totally, uh, apropos of nothing here, but I do wonder, when we when believers go to heaven will we live outside of time too or will we still experience it linearly i don't know i think it to yeah. some i mean i would think we would almost have to be outside time because it, it, in the consummation uh, he destroys the heavens and the earth and he creates a new creation and it says we will be with him mm. eternally so i would think that we would have uh, to be outside time but whether or not- I think it will all just be a giant DVR and we'll be able to rewind and fast forward. <laughs> well, um, well, I'm going to go back to my favorite verse because um, we, we dealt with this actually in uh, the episode before last when we talked about the Defenders and we were talking about uh, the concept of... Is this the Eternity one? Yeah, the, we, were con- we were talking about the concept of what they were living in, uh, like an inf- uh, a very unhealthy form of... Uh, everlasting life because they had to keep rejuvenating themselves. But we mentioned it and then I'm going to say it again, Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts yet so that he cannot fathom out or find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So this is, as I said, time is a construct of God. It's part of his creation. Uh, we are within it. He is outside of it. And I think that's the big gaping hole in this whole discussion, when I was reading the story, I kept thinking, he's missing God. He's missing God. He's missing God. And to be able to um, come up with this incredibly complex discussion about language and time and free will and completely leave God out of it. I just don't understand how they can do that. <laughs> but he somehow did. But then again, he didn't answer any of the questions he posed either. Let's face it. All that humanity knows about all of creation is that which is revealed by God. Mm-hmm. And that includes the work of the law. Mm-hmm. So uh, we know from from Romans 2.15 that they show the work of the law is written upon their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or excuse them. So it's, we, we shouldn't – I guess what I'm saying is we shouldn't be surprised when they almost get it right, <laughs> but – their pride won't let them accept right the fact that there is God. that it's God. Yeah, that that's yeah. the missing the missing X and that they have not solved for in their algebraic equation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought it was interesting. We we discussed the Tower of Babel in our last episode, but in uh, Genesis it says that this uh, Genesis three twenty two says, "Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever." They and he cast them out of the garden. I thought that was interesting in that he's outside of time, but he didn't want us to live in an eternity and cursed with our sin, and so he cast us away from the ability to extend our lifetimes in sin. 
but that's so that he could provide a salvation for us and get us out of it. So that God, God's plan is always perfect. And, um, but it's interesting because one of the dilemmas that I know atheists like to lay at the feet of Christians is that the, the whole concept of if God knew that man was going to sin, why did he create them create him in the first place? and give him the opportunity to sin. And I think that's kind of where mm-hmm. the free will came in is that he wanted to create beings that would praise and glorify him. And he is God. We can't understand that, but he didn't want puppets. He wanted us to praise and glorify him of our own free will. And in order to have the ability to praise and glorify him and of our own free will, we had to have the ability to reject him. How much more loved is the prodigal son returned mm-hmm. rather than the son who never right. left? So um, it's that really is what it is: is that the redeemed, the believers are the the returning sons. Mm-hmm. So the value, uh, the value, and the glory to God is infinitely higher than if we were just robots following some very complex programming. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he's always I, I kind of put in some some various references here in Revelations one eighteen. Um, let's see, it says, "Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades." So these are all descri- descriptions of uh, God as being beyond time. Uh, the next one is twenty one six. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So that's it's kind of interesting because not only is he saying I am the beginning and the end, but I am giving, I am giving freely of, of the water of life. And so he, he's the source of everlasting life at mm-hmm. the same time that he says I am the beginning and the end. And then the next one is... 2213. And this one says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So that's kind of the, uh, what everybody always thinks of when they hear that God referred to as the Alpha and the Omegas, you know, basically. He- yeah. It's no mistake that, uh, that God, uh, rep- a common representation for God is a circle mm-hmm. and that the, uh, the language of the heptapods is a circle. Mm hmm. Yeah, because that's that is the concept that they're trying to portray, mm-hmm. and that is is, is so uh, relevant to a discussion of God because He is, uh, in fact, when when He first appears to Moses out of the burning bush, which was our actually my uh, Sunday school lesson this morning, um, He says, "I am that I am," and he, he just He is the existent one. He He's preexistent. He is always existent. He is existent. So when with that statement of who do I say is sending me, he says, "I am sent you. I am. I exist. I am God." You know. So th- that is who God is, and he, time is immaterial to him, and that is just. Um, I don't know how you could have this discussion without talking about God. <laughs> But I kind of got ahead of myself because I wanted they they did it for the yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I wanted to deal with some of the terminology they had in here. They they threw some terms, and I found out, you know, after reading the story, um, that a lot of those terms just came out of the extremely complex technical language that was in the story. So they had to throw it in the movie too. Um, here's one of the quotes: The first breakthrough was to discover that there's no correlation between what a heptapod says what a heptapod writes. Unlike all written human languages, their writing is semi-sciographic. It conveys meaning. It doesn't represent sound. Now, I thought this was interesting because it's actually an inaccurate um, statement because it is not true of all human languages. They, they said that it's unlike all written human languages, their writing conveys meaning but it doesn't represent sound. And there are several human languages that convey meaning and do not have sound, that do not represent sound. Uh, most of the Asian languages are symbol languages. They write a glyph that means a word. Symbol. Yeah. yeah. And Chinese is that. Uh, Japanese is that. I know Egyptian is pictograms, or at least the original Egyptian. I think Egypt, Egypt speaks Arabic now, so they write an Arabic script. Uh, I don't know how Arabic fits. I just know it goes backwards, <laughs> like Hebrew and um, 
And I know that a lot of the languages, like I, I know Hebrew is one, I think Arabic is also one that you can write it without vowels. So all you get is the consonants, which is mm-hmm. um, difficult to sound out phonetically. So yeah, there there are several languages that you can read and get uh the concept of what they're saying conveys meaning without representing sound. And uh, I think that that was a, in fact, that is not a statement made in the story because I do not think as a linguist, the author of the story would have made that air, especially as he's uh, fluent in Chinese. I was actually just, I was just looking up that section because I couldn't remember it in the story either, but it, it, what it says is ling- linguists describe writing like this. And I, uh, and it, uh, this is from the first person from, uh, uh, Louise, um, I indicated the printed words as glottographic because it represents speech. Every human language, every human written language is in this category. However, this symbol, I indicated the circle and the diagonal line, is semi-sociographic <laughs> writing because it conveys meaning without rep- without reference to speech. There's no correspondence between its components and any particular sounds. So that that's interesting. I I did just Google is Chinese semi-semi-graphic, <laughs> uh-huh. and uh, the immediate response was Chinese writing is not semi-graphic. Huh. It's quite wrong. Chinese script was created as a means of representing visually or particularly spoken language, the Chinese language as it existed at the period when the script was developed. No one familiar with the language and the script could doubt this. Yeah, but it okay. it okay. doesn't convey sound, though. You can't sound out Chinese phonetically. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a difference between speech and sounds. Hmm. Interesting. Got me. Yeah. We should, we should, you know what, we, we should find a, a linguist and get them into the group to discuss Yeah, this. somebody, if somebody listening is, is more of a linguist than the two of us, we would appreciate your input. <laughs> which is probably pretty much. <laughs> yeah, anyone who speaks another language, which we don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do know because... Oh, actually, you know what, my, my son-in-law speaks uh, Farsi. Um, it's, I'll ask him next time. We yeah, um, I know that Mandarin is a spoken language because the there are several dialects of Chinese spoken uh, throughout the very massive Chinese country, and but they have a single written language and their single lingua. I know I know this because I have laid out translations in Chinese. I'm a graphic designer, so I have laid out books in languages I cannot read. <laughs> Um, But I do know that that Chinese has a simple and a traditional script form. And they do use, uh, nowadays anyway, when when you type in, when you do book layout in Chinese, uh, you can lay it out in the Western format and and include Western numerology, that they can read Western numbers. Uh, It's interesting how, I guess, the the I think there is script for Chinese numbers, but they usually use our numbers now. Yeah, every time I've seen Chinese writing with numbers, Mm -hmm. like prices or something in it, it's it's always uh, the Arabic uh, numerals that Mm -hmm. we use. Yeah, so we're coming together in some things, at least written-wise. I regularly communicate because we print in China, and so I regularly communicate with somebody who speaks who's Chinese and, uh, and her English is thankfully quite good, but I wouldn't want to try and carry on a conversation with her written. Her English is very good. I don't know how well, how good she is with spoken English. Every time I work with somebody from another country, I'm ashamed (laughs) at, at their grasp of multiple languages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, we didn't start young enough. That's our problem, Tim. Cause if, Hmm. I, I've always heard that children soak up languages, and in the United States, we actually handicap our children because we don't start language programs until high school. And if we started yeah. them in first grade, we would have multilingual children easily because the language centers of the brain are still open at that age. By the time you get to high school, they've already closed up, and so we're we're stuck learning the hard way by rote. Uh, now, another terminology they use is logogram. We've already referred to it, but here's the quote where it's described. Because unlike speech, a logogram is free of time. Like their ship or their bodies, their written language has no forward or backward direction. Linguists call this 
nonlinear orthography, which raises the question, is this how they think? Okay, so this is, we've already discussed this to some extent because we talked about the entire movie being a logogram mm. and that it is free of time. We It, it is circular, um, nonlinear. And they did a very good job, I think, of getting of saving that gotcha to the end, where if you watch the movie more than once, it doesn't get old because yeah. you're, you're still experiencing the fact that she's seeing. Now, you know, the next time you watch the movie, you're like, OK, so this hasn't happened to her yet. So she's seeing things as they happen. And and then I think this is one of those movies you almost have to watch more than once. <laughs> If you've just only because, seen it one just time, just because you know how the cake is made doesn't mean you want don't want to eat the cake. Right, right. Yeah, it, this is one of those movies that every time you watch it, you see something you missed the first time. And I like those kind of movies because they encourage you to delve deeper instead of just going for the shallow entertainment value. And this movie does have entertainment, though it is very slow paced. And I will say, I, I don't think we kind of dealt with this in the last episode to t- some extent as to whether we actually like the movie or not. <laughs> but I really like this movie. And despite the fact that it is slow paced, I think a lot of people get bored in slow paced movies. Um, and this one feels longer than it is. Uh, but I thought it, because of the concepts that it was dealing with that it held my attention, not just once, but I think I've watched it four times now Mm. and I have enjoyed it every single time. So it's just one of those movies. I, I, Uh, I like the movie too, but, uh, mm -hmm. I was, I also, as we discussed a little bit in the last, uh, the last episode, um, I liked the short story that it came from more than I liked the movie mm-hmm. and was a little put out by the uh, by uh, the differences, some of which are are silly, like name changes. Um, <laughs> Flapper and Raspberry versus Abbott and Costello or or uh, I, you know, I kind of like Abbott and Costello. It kind of rolls off the tongue. A yeah, it, you know what? It, <laughs> One of the articles I read in uh, preparing for this recording, Flapper uh, and Raspberry, almost seemed kind of insulting to me. <laughs> in the visual representation of the heptapods in the movie, uh, Costello is shorter, slightly shorter, and a little heavier uh-huh. than uh, Abbott. No, the other way around. Which one is the short guy? <laughs> that's Abbott. No, 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 that's Costello. Yes, it's Costello. He's the one who's always going, hey, Abbott. Anyway, um, and the one who does all the writing is Abbott. Uh So they actually put a lot more thought into the names. A little bit more personality. I did notice, I think, the third time that I watched it through that I could start telling them apart, which I, you know, the first time I had a hard time telling them apart. And then when the one of them gets killed, um which was not at all in the story, but um, mm-hmm. became began its death process, I guess is the way that it was yeah. it was phrased. Uh, I, I realized then that I, I was un, I was recognizing which one was there and which wasn't which one wasn't. But what I found really fascinating oh, was that. is that we, we were we were seeing only a part of them in most of the movie where they were looking at them through the screen, the, the tops of them kind of vanished out of view. And then when she goes and actually goes into the ship and has the conversation, you get to see all <laughs> the entire organism was really big. And uh, I thought that was interesting that they, it's almost like, uh, have you ever heard, I guess, the proverb about the blind man and the elephant? Have you ever heard that? Oh, the, that, the three blind men and the elephant? The, yeah, the three blind men and the elephant that, yeah. you know, us trying to describe what God looks like is like a, a blind man trying to describe what an elephant looks like based on what they actually have their hands on. Yeah. And and each one, like the one that gets a hold of a foot, says an elephant is like a tree because that's all he mm-hmm. can feel is the the leg. And the one that gets the tail says, no, it's like a rope. Um, and then the one who gets the trunk says, no, he's like a snake. And so they each have a different perspective of what God is. And I kind of felt like they were kind of pushing that with the heptapods and that through the whole movie, you only get a limited perspective of what they look like. They're always out of view. They're always bigger than the screen. And uh, until that last moment where she starts to actually encompass and feel their entire language and actually think in their language, and then she gets to see the whole thing and... 
So there, there's lots of really good symbols and imagery in this movie that I think maybe escape the common viewer. Yeah. But it's, I think that's one of the areas where this particular author really does uh, excel too. So, yeah. Uh, and then the final uh, term terminology that's introduced and was one I actually did know about prior to the movie. And it's this. What's my name, Hannah? Well, your name is very special because it is a palindrome. It reads the same forward and backward. The reason I knew about the palindrome uh, before this movie was because my uh, graduation year from high school was a palindrome, and we made a big deal about it in our uh, our yearbook that year. So 1991 was when I graduated from high school, and it reads the same way backwards or forwards. <laughs> um, so okay. they made a they made a big deal about that in our yearbook. So that's how I knew about a palindrome. <laughs> Here I always go back to rats live on no evil star. <laughs> yeah. And the people who graduated from high school or college in 2002 also graduated in a palindrome. There aren't that many of them, but there are uh, a few. And what's really cool is if you can get it the entire date where you add the month and the. Oh, so. yeah, because uh, July of this year had uh, 10 days of palindromes. <laughs> Yeah. Where it was uh it was seven one zero one seven <laughs> seven one two uh seven one 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 seven yada yada yada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So palindromes arise frequently. They're very interesting in that you can read them front to back or back to front. I don't know that that really fits all that well into the concepts that are in the movie, but I thought it was very interesting that she made the point of naming her daughter Hannah in order to get the palindrome. That raises an inter interesting question. Would she have named her daughter Hannah if she hadn't been introduced to the alien language? Oh, she was a linguist. So those kind of things may have fascinated oh, her true. anyway. Yeah. You never know. Uh, I mean, that's, an in indication of free will, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is this is an interesting thought. In the movie, we've kind of already dealt with if if you can see your entire life from beginning to end, would you change anything? We didn't talk about the corollary, though we did talk about free will, is could you change anything? And in the aspect of free will, we were saying that she could have changed anything. She could have changed things, but she didn't change things so that she didn't change things. <laughs> because very clear thank you very much Eve. <laughs> clear as mud right no yeah it, if she had changed anything she would have known her life as it would have been changed so she didn't change anything because now, there is a scene in the movie where she appears to do that though hmm. where um where she remembers the future meeting with the Chinese general after she has already convinced him to cease and desist basically. To, yeah. 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 To, to stand down. Yeah. Right. And uh, so as a result of that memory, she then steals a sat phone and calls him and tells him, calls and, him and, using and the when, number that she got from the memory of the future and, and remembering as he whispered in her ear in the future what he was what he she said to him so that she could say it to him <laughs> yeah and you know during that memory he says i feel like i'm supposed to give you this stuff so i, I don't know was that supposed to be an indication that he was learning the language as well i don't know or maybe she told him that she needed him to tell her this <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, my head hurts. <laughs> my head hurts. My head hurts. But yeah, the fact that, and and we talked about this already, but the fact that she goes ahead and and has a baby with Ian, knowing that that baby is going to die of a terminal illness, fails to tell him that so that he has to learn it the hard way. And then he gets mad at her and leaves her because she she chose wrong. That the and whole she, she, and she knew he would get mad at her and leave her. But she did it anyway. Because she didn't tell him, and she did it anyway. Oh, boy. <laughs> now, here's the other question, which is answered differently 
in the story is, is Louise the only one who learns the language and gets thrust outside of time? Because in the context of the movie, she seems to be the only one who's mastered it, right? Yeah, but in, yeah, definitely. But when you read the story, it sounds like every there was a linguist at every one of the sites who mastered it. Hmm. I don't remember them being... I, I do remember in the story being many other people who mastered it. Yes. Because um, uh, in, in, in yeah, the final think, scene, in the final scene where the aliens leave, she is with another linguist and they, she says they're going through this conversation like automatons because they know what's about to happen mm-hmm. and they're not giving anybody else clues to it so because they because they didn't so they know they can't right yeah so it, it was kind of that i'd actually asked that question before reading the story and i i kind of well, i wondered that in the movie because they didn't really give you the feel that that anyone else mastered it that she was the only one that did and but yet they all had their 12 pieces of the pie that eventually would have to be put together. Cause remember the, the gift of the languages was missing. It had the negative space and they had determined that each of the 12 heptapod right. sites had gotten a different 12th of the total solution or something like that. Yeah. in in the, the story, there was actually nine crafts in the United States and, uh, I want to say a hundred around the rest of the world, mm-hmm. um, and they were intended to all work together. So uh, they did sort of pare it down, um, but maybe they were intending her mastery of the language to be like the keystone that that she was together. the only one who could actually think in it and dream yeah. in it. Yeah, where it actually changed her perspective. I don't know. They that, don't. That would a, make sense, but they didn't. If if that was the case, they didn't communicate it very well. <laughs> yeah, they didn't communicate. Well, I think that they I wanted. There. I suspect because the the story left so much hanging that they didn't want to answer every single question in the movie. They answered a whole lot more questions than the story did, but I yeah. think they wanted some left up to the the viewer to decipher for themselves. So one of the one of the cute things that uh, was in the story and that we, I don't think made it in the movie was, um, you know, we mentioned that a lot of the story was uh, the technical technical aspects of the language, language, linguistics and everything. Um, and there's this one section which I wish had been able to get into the movie somehow, uh, but uh, the. The first person narrator, the narrator says, when it comes to language learning antidotes, my favorite source is uh, child language acquisition. I remember one afternoon when you were when you were five years old, after you've come home from kindergarten, you'll be coloring with your with your crayons while I grade paper. While I grade papers, mom, you'll say, using the carefully casual tone reserved for requesting a favor. Can I ask you something? Sure, sweetie, go ahead. Can I be um, honored? Uh, I'll look up from the paper I'm grading. What do you mean? At school, Sharon said she got to be honored. Really? Did she tell you what for? It was for her big sister when her big sister got married. She said only one person could be honored and she was it. Ah, Ah, I see. You mean Sharon was a maid of honor. Yeah, that's it. Can I be maid of honor? And the, the cute part was... Uh, maid of honor when the narrator says it is M-A-I-D of honor. Mm-hmm. And the, when the sixth grader, uh, when the uh, the kindergartner says it, it's M-A-D-E of mm-hmm. honor. Right. So, it, yeah, I don't, I don't know how they would have done that in the, the movie, but it was it was cute. And it was a, a nice, nice language learning antidote that uh, was fit in there. They did have a similar one that was in both was the non-zero sum game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mom. Hmm? Sweetie. Uh, what's this term for that thing? Like a, like a technical term? Where we make a deal and we both get something out of it. Ah, uh, compromise. No. Like, it's a competition. Mm-hmm. But both sides end up happy. Like a win-win. More science than that. If you want science, call your father. And then they have this other discussion that's going on in the real time. 
Hand it out to us in pieces. Why not just give it all over? What better way to force us to work together for once? Even if I did believe you, how in the world are you going to get anybody else to play along and give up their data? We offer ours in return. Yeah. A trade? It's a non-zero-sum game. Non-zero-sum game. That's it. Yeah. Thanks. So yep. she's using a real-time conversation to answer a question for her daughter in the future. And so that, that was the- a, that was really when you first started getting, uh, for me, at least is when you first, when I first started getting the clue that, uh, that her memory wasn't quite what we expected it to be. Yeah. That there was something going on, which she gave us that information right at the beginning. Cause she said, yeah. Memory is a strange thing. It doesn't work like I thought it did. We are so bound by time. By its order. And they kept repeating this, come back to me, come back to me. I remember moments in the middle. I love you. I hate you! <laughs> and this was the end. At the end, they recap some of that as well. And then it ends with, you want to make a baby? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that this and, and that's why I think in the last episode, if you remember, I played a little bit of the music for um, the, the beginning and ending. And even though the soundtrack was written by someone else for this, the score, um, the music by Max Richter is is so apropos for the for those scenes at the beginning and the end, and I, and I I really think they make the movie if it weren't for those, um, it would just be your typical sci-fi without really any clue of what's going on. The last thing that I I would like to deal with just touching on is the number twelve because it seems so significant in the that there were. And like you said, it was different in the movie from the book or the novella, but there were 12 sites and 12 is like the number of completion in, in the scripture. Um, It's all through the book of revelation. If you do a search for the number 12, it like pops up over and over and over again in revelation. And I think part of that is, is that there were 12 sons of Israel and so there's the 12 tribes of Israel. And so everything is done in 12s in Revelation and the, in the consummation at the end. So I, I feel like I, I know that this was a secular made movie and that they weren't making any kind of uh, biblical, um, biblical connotations based on what they were talking about. But at the same time, I think it's very significant that it turned out to be 12, the, the number yeah. that they, they landed on. They, and the fact that they couldn't find any correlation for the sites. Um, that was another really funny quote. Why did they park where they did? The world's most decorated experts can't crack that one. The most plausible theory is that they chose places on Earth with the lowest incidence of lightning strikes. But there are exceptions. The next most plausible theory is that Sheena Easton had a hit song at each of these sites in 1980. So we just don't know. Now they did have... When the when they had the Pentecostal cult, um, they said their website claims the arrival of the aliens set in motion a prophecy that twelve sets of twelve should follow the Lamb, mm-hmm. and so they talked about the twelve there. So twelve is like discussed throughout this entire movie. <laughs> it's like everywhere. Yeah. Which I thought, by the way, they did info dumps in this movie very uniquely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. They would just have somebody talk over a montage and slide you into a bunch of information over a period of time without, like you're sitting in a class and you're getting a lecture. That's pretty funny. I think that's kind of the end of our discussion. There's probably a lot more in this movie we could talk about, but the uh, uh, that's the whole fun of having a discussion group on Facebook is you guys can come in and and 
start a discussion, especially if you're a linguist. We'd love to have you chime in on those things that we completely yeah. missed because neither Tim nor I speak anything but English, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, th- this movie and the story that it comes from, they're both so cerebral. Uh, it, it, it's it's sort of hard to to break down into a presentation you know for the for the podcast i i think this really does need to manifest as a discussion mm-hmm. much more clearer than than the uh than you know the two person discussion that we're having yeah yeah and somebody with a knowledge of language i think could like various languages could definitely chime in and and add some real cohesiveness to our somewhat scatterbrained nice. discussion. Yes, <laughs> but that's it for now. And uh, you can find the show notes at areyoujustwatching.com slash 75. 75. And mm-hmm. uh, we, you can comment there, but we really would like you to join our Facebook discussion group, which is closed, but all you have to do is ask to join and you'll get in um, as soon as one of us sees that you want in. Uh, you can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com and send us audio files if you want to be in, uh, get engaged in future discussions. Uh, can leave us a voicemail at 903-231-2221. Subscribe, rate, and review in iTunes and share our podcast or share our episodes on Facebook if you can or Twitter or any of the other social media. We would really, uh, love the additional, uh, promotion uh, be our promoters for us get spread the word yes we we could use new input so and like i said in our previous episode we are working on rebranding i'm hoping to have that out for our next episode if it isn't for our next episode it will definitely be by the beginning of next year we might start working it in a little bit at a time like Mm -hmm. change some make some small format decisions instead of rolling a whole new thing out yeah. And we do not know what we are recording on next, do we? Uh, that will be November. Well, stay tuned and find out what we're going to record in November because we don't know what we're reviewing. So. Yeah, it's, we'll, we can post it to the Facebook group, right? Yeah, we'll post once we it. Once we've producing. made a decision, we'll, we'll post what we're going to record on next in our Facebook group. And if you have any input, we'd uh, love to have it. So I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And thank you again so much for listening. And don't just watch. Are You Just Watching is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. Our opening vocal talent was thanks to Mariah. The theme song is used courtesy of Answers in Genesis. For more great podcasts like this one, visit the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. That's noodle.mx. Thank you.